Good morning and welcome to Lakeside Christian Church. I invite you to open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And before we consider the text before us, let's turn to the Lord one more time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are your people gathered together before your word desperately in need of your spirit to teach us what it is that you would have us to know. As we look back thousands of years and we recognize a great distance between us and the situation that we will be looking at, we pray that in your mercy you would translate for us what it is that you're calling us to here and now. We don't desire just to receive more information, but Father, we come before you open, desiring that you would transform our thoughts, our intentions, our actions, our relationships, and our witness for you. We ask believing that These desires are your desires. And so we ask in confidence, believing that you will hear and answer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're looking at 1 Thessalonians and entitling this series, Beginning with the End. We're calling it the beginning because this is Paul's first pastoral epistle. The Thessalonians are the first church that we're aware of that he took the time to pen a letter to. And so it's the beginning of what would serve as the foundation of the New Testament as we have come to know it today. And so this is Paul's beginning. This is his first letter. And a theme which consumes a good portion of this letter is the return of Jesus Christ. That there was a distinctive message that Paul had given to, his, uh, to the believers there in Thessalonica about the return of Jesus Christ so that what he has to primarily address when he writes to them is again along those lines. And so his first letter begins with the subject of Christ's return. And we as Christians believe that the return of Christ is the culmination of all human history. And it should be the motivation of the mission of the church. We should always keep before us the return of Jesus as the end to which everything is going and our motivation right here and now for why we do what we do. But we began last week, not in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, but in Acts chapter 17. There it described Paul's first entry into the city and his strategy as he sought to engage them. 
And we saw that the city of Thessalonica was a city that was pretty successful in its day and age. It had some political independence from Rome. It was, as long as it didn't cause any trouble, allowed to do whatever it wanted to do. Because of that political independence, it was able economically to be fairly prosperous. It was a port city where business was booming. Exchange of goods and services were happening all over the place, and it was a great place to be. Culturally, it was a progressive city, very progressive, especially for its day and age. Though it was controlled overall by Rome, it was still influenced culturally by Greece, and it allowed for a good number of its citizens access to power, to wealth, um, to property, and to business. And it was, as we said last time, spiritually vibrant. If you walked into this city and said, are these people spiritual? The answer overwhelmingly would have been yes. They worship all the time and they worship almost everything. But this is a spiritually vibrant place. And when they worship, they know how to do it. They hold week-long festivals where the food is great and the parties last for a long time. They know how to worship. It was a city that, if you will, in that day and age, if you would have looked at the the various cities throughout the empire, if you would have entered into it, you would have said, they actually seem to be doing okay. Things here, relatively speaking, are going very well. And depending on our definition of the good life and our understanding of the gospel, you might have just been tempted to move on and say, things here are going so well, we can address another group of people. But for Paul, who saw that the good life was not defined by political independence or economic prosperity or being culturally progressive, all of those things, that he saw that the primary need of each and every human heart was a spiritual need, that he looked at this city and said, this is a place that still needs the gospel message to be proclaimed. God's word needs to be established among these people. The truth of who Jesus is and what he's done needs to come here. And so he set up shop and for months he worked in the city as a tent maker and a church planter. And his success in actually forming a group of people in worshiping Jesus led to opposition. Say that again, his success led to opposition. Because in his day and age, the embracing of Jesus, especially for these people here in Thessalonica, was not simply an addition to their life, where they could just add Jesus on to everything else they were doing. But when they embraced Jesus, it changed everything about their daily lives. And because of that, as these believers started participating a little bit less in these week-long parties and a little bit less in these public displays of gratitude to the Roman Empire, they were thought of as dangerous. What is it? These people were trying to throw a party here and everybody enjoys this time of year. What are they doing staying home? I thought they were comfortable with this. They've been doing it their whole lives. What happened now that all of a sudden they they can't celebrate with us? And so opposition started to come as these group of believers started to proclaim their loyalty, 
not to Rome, but to another king, King Jesus. And so the growth of this community then led increasingly to opposition, so much so that Paul was forced to flee in the middle of the night. He had to leave, no opportunity to get together with all the people that for months he had been shepherding, pastoring, teaching, admonishing, and saying, hey, I'm not able to stay much longer And so let me give to you some parting wisdom. No, the description that that Luke gives us in Acts is that it was an immediate departure. He had to leave quickly or his life was in danger. And so Paul, having spent months with this community of people, is forced to leave. And so his success led to opposition. His opposition forced him to leave. And then this separation now is what forced Paul to write. This period of separation, him now being in a different city, is what motivates his writing of a letter. But he didn't begin with the writing of a letter. In chapters 2 and 3, it tells us that what he first did was send one of his co-workers back to the city of Thessalonica to give a personal update from Paul and receive a personal update from them. And it was Timothy. And so Paul is is removed, he's a couple cities on, but he's wondering what's going on because he's aware of the persecution and he just wants to know how these people whom he loves so much are doing, he sends one of his co-workers, Timothy, along. And Timothy comes back, it says in chapter three and verse six, and it says that Timothy has come to us, Paul, from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. And so now Paul begins after hearing Timothy's report, knowing that though he longs to see them, he can't, he starts to pen 1 Thessalonians. And we are the beneficiaries Because had Paul been able to make it back, he would have communicated verbally with each and every one of them. And we wouldn't have before us a letter to look at and examine and say, what is it that Paul said to them? So we are the beneficiaries of this separation that exists between them that nobody around desired to happen, but because of it, it was one of the ways in which God ordained that the New Testament would come about to us. Paul now has a, uh, begins a pattern which he will continue and which will form for us the majority of what we know is our New Testament. He follows up with the churches that he helped plant. And since he's bound by time and space, he can't be everywhere. He realizes that he has a ministry of writing to accomplish. And this is what he pens in his first words. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but there's just something that intrigues me in knowing that it's his first letter. It says, I really want to look at it. You know, if you've known someone for a long time, and then you discover maybe something that they did 10 years prior or 20 years prior, before you knew them, you say, oh, I wonder what they were like back then. 
It'd be great, and we like seeing the, the report cards of, of children or things like that, but when we get to encounter someone, and now we have some opportunity to look backwards and say, what was the first thing he said? What did he emphasize at the beginning of his ministry? Before there was too much conflict internally within the church. And what were the kind of situations that Paul had to deal with here that he couldn't even foreseen he would have to deal with 10 years later as he's writing a different church in a different city with different issues. But this letter, as it comes to us, is not written out of conflict within the community of believers in Thessalonica. Some later letters, like Corinthians and others, and Galatians, Paul is writing, and things aren't going very well in the churches. People are upset with each other. Groups are forming and people are for this guy or that person or this way of thinking. And so Paul has to write letters trying to deal with conflict. But when we come to 1 Thessalonians, he's not writing to address conflict that's going on internally within the believers. So if you will, this is Paul in his most relaxed writing his most personal writing with people whom he knows and loves and who he knows love him right back. And so when we come, we not only get him in the beginning of his ministry, but we also get him before, if you will, some of the, the battle scars have set in of his pastoral work. And so this is what we get of Paul in these early years. Paul Silvinus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait 
for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We see immediately in the beginning of this chapter the very personal tone of Paul. He introduces himself, unlike many of his other letters, simply as Paul. Paul, Silvinus, and Timothy. Later in his ministry, when people would begin to attack his ministry and question his authenticity, his letters would begin, Paul, an apostle of God, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, because his very authority as an apostle was something that was in question. But here, early on to this congregation that he helped to form in its early stages, Paul doesn't need to introduce himself with a title. He simply needs to introduce himself with a name. The way you and I would refer to ourselves with people that are close to us. I don't think many people here will refer to themselves among their brothers and sisters or their parents or their nephews and nieces in their official titles. Well, no, don't call me this, call me doctor so-and-so. The, the formalities sort of lose sway when you're in a context of personal relationships and people who knew you before you were a doctor or before you had achieved some sort of status. You simply know each other by your names. And Paul is able to do this, to simply identify himself and his co-workers and everybody knows who they are and they know who they're talking about. There's not a conflict going on between Paul, Silvinus, who Acts also refers to and we know as Silas, and Timothy. And so he can just address them personally to the churches of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. This is a very specific way that as Paul begins at this, he continues for the rest of his ministry to emphasize these two things, grace and peace. Grace and peace. And if you actually turn to the end of Thessalonians, you'll see that Paul ends this letter with the statement in chapter 5 and verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It is, if you will, as if this whole letter is sandwiched or bookend with grace. He's going to start there and he's going to end there. Whatever is read in between has to be read and understood and received in the context of God's grace. Not in the context of even Paul's authority or his wisdom but God's grace. That that is the defining thing that forms us together as a community. Why are we a community of believers? And so before we even look at the question of the distinguishing marks of Christian community, and we ask ourselves the question, how do we even become a Christian community? It is only through God's grace. None of us is qualified to be a Christian. None of us deserves to be a Christian. None of us have worked hard enough to be a Christian. None of us have been just born into the right family and so we're privileged to be a Christian. We are only Christians because of God's grace. And so every 
word, whether it's an encouragement or an admonishment, whether it's remembering something from the past or trying to motivate and encourage something for the future, it all has to be said in the context of God's grace to us, which enables us to be at peace with him. God's grace to us, his free offer of love to us, is what enables us to be at peace with him and at peace with one another. And so now here, Paul is writing these believers who, as we see described in verse 6, are believers who are receiving the word, having their Bible studies in their homes, fellowshipping with one another in much affliction. From everything that we can learn about this city, the affliction that came upon the believers was not an organized systematic and immediate affliction. In other words, there's, there's other periods in the history of God's people where the leader of Rome, if you will, organizes oppression and persecution against the believers. And so people are attacked, drawn out, and asked, do you or do you not believe? And if they profess loyalty to Jesus, they're punished many times to the point of death. The affliction, the persecution, however, that's going on in here is not that kind of a persecution. The city official is not organizing some opposition to the church. It is, if you will, a steady and sustained persecution. Small, maybe in in individual doses, but they just keep on coming. If you will, it's not the being drenched by a flood kind of persecution, it's the dripping of a water. That just one of them maybe doesn't annoy you too much, maybe two, maybe three, but it's just persistent and it's sustained and you can't quite see when it will end. This is the kind of persecution that these believers are enduring They're not being asked in the moment, will you right now accept Christ and lose your life or will you deny him and still be able to live? But as they continue to think through and to pray through the consequences of their faith and they stop participating in some of the things that everybody else is participating in, they maybe lose a job because they're unwilling to to do what their boss is asking them to do. And then two weeks later, they're not invited to the family function that they've always been invited to because they're viewed as kind of annoying now. The party poopers, if you will. When we're all trying to celebrate, they're just the ones not quite willing to go along. And as they grow, they're viewed increasingly as a threat. A threat to the society. That's what happened as we read in Acts 17 that Paul and his co-workers were described as people who are turning the world upside down. Not just bringing a different gospel and a different message, but that what they were bringing affected everything. And so for these believers now, as they're organizing and having their own meetings, people are increasingly viewing them with suspicion. When they walk by on the street, somebody's whispering. 
something about them. That's one of those persons. Why aren't they? I haven't seen them in a long time. Yeah, they meet in their home. They study some book. And, and they never, they don't come out and, and, and do this or do that. And just this sort of sustained persecution. Never overly dramatic in any one instance, but it's long. And sometimes it's that kind of suffering that is the hardest to handle. When we're surprised by suffering and something happens in one moment and we have to respond to it, it's just a different form of suffering than when we get a diagnosis that says, this is a battle you're going to face for the rest of your life. What you're dealing with will never go away. It's never going to get so painful in one moment that you're going to pass out and die. But your body will continually deteriorate. It'll be slow. It'll feel more like a drip. Or we move into a new area and we realize our neighbor doesn't like us at all. And doesn't have the same definition of what we think of a neighbor is supposed to do and be. But we realize we can't just up and sell and move somewhere tomorrow. We're here. We just invested in this. This is where we are. And we realize, well, they're never going to attack us. They're never going to come out and just just try to eliminate us. But we're going to have this regular conflict that's going to keep on going. And that's what these believers are facing. And it's the kind of suffering where when you, when you meet somebody who's dealing with it, you realize words are minimal. When you just want to sit down next to someone and give them a hug because you know words aren't going to do a whole lot. Something is going on that's going to last for a long period of time and what somebody needs is just some form of encouragement and you would love to be able to encourage them in the form of your presence, your fellowship, a hug saying, I know this is a long battle. So I'm not going to say anything superficial about how it's all going to be easy and it's going to go away. I know it's a long battle and I want to encourage you and here is Paul desiring to do that And yet he can't. He's not going to show up tomorrow and be able to put his arm around anybody. And so he has to use his words and look at his words in verses 2 and 3 and on. To these people who are feeling isolated from their specific context, rejected by their world, looked down upon by their neighbors, Paul wants to say, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. The person who's right next to you, who you feel closely rejecting you, angry at you, they're not the only one who thinks about you. I, we, think about you all the time. And when we do, we remember you in our prayers and we give thanks to God for you. We spend our time talking to the Father about how much we love you, how much our lives have been changed because of you and your response in the faith 
And then in verse 4, for we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. There are few messages or truths of the Christian faith that can reach and minister to a community that is feeling rejected than the truth of God's election. There are few Christian truths that can minister to a person who's feeling rejected than the truth of God's election. Now, as Paul brings up this subject in verse 4, you can see he's being pastoral. He's not bringing up some point of doctrine that he hopes the whole church divides over because they're debating it and they can't agree on how to define it. But he's looking at individual people who feel like they're left out and that they've been rejected by the world and to them, he says, you have been selected by God. You who are feeling rejected and cast out, not chosen by the world, no longer invited to the party, that from God's perspective, you are selected, chosen, invited, loved, and redeemed. And in so doing, Paul does what each and every one of us need to know is that no matter how generous his words are in verses 2 and 3, It's ultimately not his love for the believers that will give them what they need to endure their suffering. It is not Paul's love for the believers that will give them what they need to endure their suffering. And so while he expresses to them his affection, he points them up to God and says, but what you really need to know is that he loves you. That he hasn't rejected you. That he looks on you with joy and wants nothing more than to be with you. That's the message that these believers need to hear so that they can endure the sustained suffering and affliction that they are experiencing. Not Paul or Silas, or Timothy's own love towards them. That is important. But they need to hear about God, his love, his compassion for each and every one of them. And then he goes on to say, we know this because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And so we know the truth of God's purposes toward us because of all that what we're seeing. Verses 3 and 5, if you will, all highlight the truth of verse 4. And so this is how Paul is coming in as he's looking at this group of people and how they're responding to the suffering that they're experiencing in ways that he can only attribute to God. And so I'd like to look at the, specifically in verse 3, the three distinguishing marks of Christian community. As Paul describes these group of believers, and as we look at them to look at how they relate to the truth, or what truth it is about God that enables these distinguishing marks. 
And then the challenge for us as a group of believers today is say, are we distinguished by these things? If someone were to describe us individually as a Christian, would they say, you're a person who, and we'll look at verse 3. And then the challenge is, if they looked at all of us together, would they describe us in these three ways? But look at how Paul describes them. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. These are the very same terms Paul would use later and we're more familiar with in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. But these three characteristics from the very beginning were for Paul the distinguishing marks of a Christian community. Their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope that they, in responding to the gospel, could be distinguished by these things. And if we were to look at them just in order, your work of faith, can someone say that about us? Are you working in faith? Are you striving, pushing, pressing, seeking to grow in faith? It would be hard to describe someone like that if all they were doing is something that they'd always done. That if you're working in whatever you're most comfortable in, or I'm working in whatever I'm simply most familiar in, or I only fight the battles I think I can win, I only show up when I think I get to control the situation, It'd be hard to describe me as someone who is working in faith. No, I'm more the person then who's working in sight. I'm working on the basis of my own comforts, my own ability to control the situation, and so I only do the things that I believe I can get done. Instead of looking at something and saying, you know what, if this really happens, this is going to be way above me. And if we as a church really take on this project, we don't have the resources to do it. You put all of us together and we still, we could not do this. But then we challenge ourselves and say, well, are we working in faith? Persistently working, trying, striving to grow, believing that God will do something that we cannot see. That he will accomplish something we cannot accomplish. And as these believers are working in faith, they are believing. Just imagine this group for a moment, if you will. If you could picture yourself as one of these Thessalonians. Somebody has entered into your city and given you a message. The implications of which transform everything. And they say, this Jesus will be coming back. Almost none of these people would have been in Jerusalem 20 years before and seen Christ, seen what he did. They get this message some 15, 20 plus years later about something that happened that changes everything. And Paul shares this message. And now Paul is gone. 
So the Savior that we believe in is not here among us walking in Thessalonica like he was in Jerusalem. And the apostle who was here and shepherding us, teaching us these things, is no longer here. It's not difficult to imagine a neighbor coming up to them and saying, do you really think this is going to work out for you? Do you really think that what they said was true? It's something that happened a couple hundred miles away that you didn't see and experience. And you're going to put your hope in that, your faith in that? You're going to work together now in expectation of that? And then, yes, this, what was his name? Paul? Yeah, where's he? He's not here right now. When's he coming back? We don't know. (laughs) He says he wants to be back but he still hasn't come back yet. How's that working out for you? You gonna keep working, meeting together, isolating yourself from these parties that we're having, all this fun that we're doing? And for these believers, the answer was yes. They had become known as people who were commended for their work of faith that they had faith in something that they could not see, a reality that was greater, that was coming, which was not immediately accessible to them. And so they were distinguished by this working of faith and then this laboring of love, that as they did it, they did it in love. They didn't isolate themselves and become sort of a violent terrorist organization trying to undermine everything going on in the city. But love was their primary motivation. As Paul reminds them, they were loved by God. He has chosen you, you, brothers and sisters, loved by God. If you believe that, and if that's what shapes your community of how you came together, then you should be distinguishable by the love that you have for one another and the love that you have for others. It is oftentimes when we begin to work in faith and try to do things and hold out for things that we cannot yet see, that we then can become proud in our working in faith and we become unloving towards others. It's so easy when we are willing, excuse me, to work in faith, to hold out for something we cannot now see, excuse me, To then allow in our own hearts pride to creep up as we look at other people and begin to think of ourselves as better than them. And so Paul holds these things in tension. Yes, you work in faith, but you do it in love. You love the other ones who are working in faith alongside you, and you love the ones who are still struggling to work in faith. And you can do this because of God's love for you. And then, the steadfastness of hope. They were a community distinguishable by hope. And as Paul points these out, he says, listen, it's not just that I observe this. It's not just that God observes this. He says, this reputation of theirs, 
of their faith, hope, and love is being spread throughout all the region. In verse 7, look, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. The testimony of their faith was so strong that you simply had to reference them and people knew, yeah, that's where there's people working in faith, laboring in love, and they're steadfast in their hope. You don't even need to defend it. Paul didn't need to go around and if somebody asked him, how are things going there? Well, there's this going on and this going on and we're hoping to work through this. These marks had become such distinguishing marks of their community that their fame was beginning to spread. Now notice how their fame spread. They weren't trying to become famous. They didn't organize themselves together and say, how can we get our name out into this whole region? How can we become popular among all the churches? When that's your goal, you're unlikely to become popular, or if you do, it'll be for all the wrong reasons. What they did was simply focus on what was before them and do what they did well. They worked in their faith, in love, in hope, among themselves, and God took care of the spreading of that news around. That if they committed themselves to love well and to live well together, God would do the work of spreading their name to everybody. But oh, how comforting these words must have been to these believers who were feeling in their immediate circumstances rejected, unwelcome, uninvited, that Paul says to them, I give thanks to God always for you, mentioning you in my prayers. This whole region is talking about what God is doing in your life. But again, remember all of that while true, pales in comparison to the truth of God's love for you. And then look at how this ends. For they themselves, in verse 9 and 10, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Their steadfastness in hope was rooted in their confidence of God's return. That when it was all said and done, when history ended, that Jesus would return from heaven, the one who was raised from the dead, and that he can deliver any and all, from the wrath to come. And it's this confidence in how it would all end that gave them the ability in the moment to live in faith, in love, and in hope. And I submit to you today, our view of the end is one of the most significant factors in how we will live our lives today. 
Just imagine two people given the very, very same assignment. And so I come up to one of you and say, look, I'm giving you a responsibility today. Here's a stack of papers. Here's a stamp. By the end of the day, every piece of paper needs to have one stamp on it, okay? And then move it over to the pile. And you say, what do I get for this? Well, you won't get beat up if you do it well. What? I mean, I'm telling you, you have to do it. And if you don't do it, you're getting in trouble. Now imagine I come up to somebody else and I say, here's a stack of papers and here's a stamp. Make sure on every page there's a stamp by the end of the day. Well, what are you going to give me when it's done? How does a million dollars sound? For putting a stamp on a piece of paper? Yeah, for putting a stamp on a piece of paper. Me, I... And you're just excited. You put some music on the radio. You're listening. You're excited. I can't believe somebody's doing this for me. I get all of this for just doing this. And then imagine that other person, the first person, sitting next to that person. What? For not getting beat up? What? It cannot be exciting. It cannot be meaningful to just stamp a piece of paper. But no, what they're doing is exactly the same. What's different about them is their perspective of how it's all going to end. What it means when it's all over. And for the one who's just hoping to avoid punishment, avoid pain, that motivates you only so much. But when you get a vision that in the end, it's Jesus, it's him that you get to be with forever in all of his perfection, in all of his beauty, then the things that we are asked to do, even when they are suffering, even when they might be difficult or mundane, persistent and slow, become for us a little thing. Because we radically expect something that none of us can fathom when it's all said and done. And therefore, we can do the right here, the right now, the mundane, and the slow and the persistent with this great sense of joy that we get to do this for the king who's coming back and who's going to make it all great in the end for each and every one of us. And so we conclude, if you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how Paul is able to think of all of the Christian life in light of what God is doing. And if we are going to become a community of people that is distinguished by faith, love, and hope, we too must share this perspective that Paul has. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So, we do not lose heart Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison 
as we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's bow as we pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you that you put before us a beautiful end, a glorious end where your love for us, your grace toward us will provide for us an eternity with you spared from any wrath or any judgment to come. And Father, we pray that you would keep that end before us and help us here at Lakeside, one, all of us individually, to be distinguished by faith, by love, by hope in you and all that you've done and all that you will do. And as we do that individually before you, Father, help us to do that as a church. Help us as a church family to work in faith to take on tasks and responsibilities that are above and beyond us, believing that you will make up all the difference. Father, help us to labor in love, to not think of ourselves as better than anybody else, but to love those that are by us, to love those that are different from us, to love those that are not yet working by faith. And Father, give each and every one of us a steady hope that whatever afflictions come, whatever persistent struggles we have to endure, that if we could just see them in light of you, they would become slight and momentary. And Father, help us just to focus not on becoming famous, not on becoming well-known, not on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen to love well, and to live well in community with one another. And to do this, we pray for your grace and peace. Amen.